Well, welcome to City Reach again. This month is Mission Month, and Mission Month in the life of our church is a month that we set aside to look at the mission aspect of our apprenticeship to Jesus or our discipleship in Jesus. You see, at City Reach, we say that we live out our new identity through community on mission. We've been given by grace this amazing new identity. We've been made the children of God. We live that out by being a member of God's family, the church, the, the community. And we live that out on mission. You know, mission is not an optional extra for Christians. Jesus said to his early disciples, he said, come follow me. And then he said, and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, I will include you in my mission to make other disciples of Jesus. And so we're going to be doing a number of things this mission month. We're going to be praying. So like tonight, we're going to be praying for our families and friends who don't know Jesus. We've also got these booklets of prayer that will guide you to pray for people who are far from God. Then we, in two weeks' time, we have the Alpha course on Friday night, the 14th of May. Uh, we ask you if you are inviting a friend to come along that to, make, to that to make sure you register for yourself and for your friend. But we're doing that because we want to see people far from God come and see. We want them to come and see. We want them to come and, and meet Jesus and come to, to know Jesus. And so that's going to be in a couple of weeks' time. And then we're going to have open houses. Like we've got one tonight with uh, Found at Five is having an open house for people on the outside to come and see. And then on the last Sunday of this month, we will have an open house where we want to just invite our family and friends and anyone who doesn't know Jesus, to come and come to know him. And so that's what Mission Month is all about. And as I was thinking, Lord, what do you want me to teach on this Mission Month? This phrase came into my mind, mission and explosion of joy. Mission and explosion of joy. Now, I got that phrase from the late Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin was a missionary and a Church of England minister and he was a missionary to um, India for many, many years. And he, was a, he, he went on the mission field to India before the Second World War. And then he came back to England after the Second World War. And he observed that when he came back from the mission field, after having been on the mission field for all those years, when he came back from India, he noticed that the culture in England had changed. Before he left, it was a very religious culture. But afterwards, after he came back, after the war, it was now a very secular culture. And yet he observed that the church had not changed. It was still doing things that it had always done for generations. And so what Nubikin advocated is that the church needed to change its posture, away from being this thinking of itself as this institution that deserves to be at the center of society to being a collection of missionaries who are on mission to represent Jesus in the society. And if there's one thing that I've been trying to plead with us for the last 11 years, is that that's the posture that we need to adopt now, is we need to not see ourselves as having this privileged status in society because we are the church, but rather we need to see ourselves as a collection of missionaries in a hostile environment, on mission for Jesus, just like the early disciples of Jesus were. Now, in uh, his book, Gospel in a Pluralistic Society, which is way, be way before its time, was written in the 1980s, he has this chapter, and it's entitled, The Logic of Mission. 
And he starts it out this way. Let me read this quote to you. He says, There has been a long tradition which sees the mission of the church primarily as obedience to a command. It has been customary to speak of the missionary mandate. He says, This way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification. Obviously, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 19-20, He commanded His church, He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So this way of putting the matter is certainly not without justification. And yet, Newbigins writes, it seems to me that it misses the point. It tends to make mission a burden rather than a joy, to make it part of the law rather than part of the gospel. You see, I wonder, when I said that to you today, that we're going on mission, we're doing mission month, I wonder what happened in your heart. I wonder if you went, oh no, I need to miss the next four weeks, next four Sundays. You know, because I don't know about for you, but for me, when it comes to mission and evangelism, there is nothing that I have sucked more at than evangelism in my Christianity, in my Christian faith. There's nothing that I've done worse at than being on mission than sharing Jesus with others. And oftentimes when it comes to the way that we motivate Christians to be on mission, we often bring out a big stick and we say, get on mission, get on mission, do more, do more, be more. Come on, invite more. Be on mission. Get on mission. You know, one church that I grew up in, and I'm not suggesting this was a bad thing, but it just happened. Like, our pastor was challenging the church. He said, we are going to be on mission this year, so stand up, everyone, if you are going to share the gospel with one person this year. Well, you can imagine everyone stood up. No one was wanting to be honest and sort of sat down. Everyone stood up. And I, you know, at the end of that year, I have to be honest, I didn't share the gospel with one person, and I felt extremely guilty. Am I the only one here this morning? Are you listening to what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm talking about? Who, who here just senses this burden when we talk about mission? It feels like more of a burden and something that we need to add to our lives rather than a joy, right at the very center of our lives. You know, maybe there's some people here today and you are so broken, so in pain, your life is such a mess that you're like, Timon, there is just no way that I could ever think of being on mission. Maybe once I get things together. Maybe once I clean, get cleaned up a bit. Maybe once my life is a bit more together and a bit more put back together. Maybe then I could be on a witness for Jesus. Maybe then I could be on mission for Jesus. But man, I am just so much in pain. I'm so broken. I could never even think about being on mission. See, what will turn mission from being this burden that we feel to being a joy? What will turn mission from being this thing that we feel like we need to add to our lives to being something that's at the actual fabric, that's woven into the fabric of our lives? Because, you know, it's interesting when you read the New Testament, for the New Testament Christians, it was an explosion of joy. For example, in Acts 9, after, at the persecution of Stephen, when the persecution of Stephen broke out, all of the leaders, they remained in Jerusalem, and then all the people, they scattered. And you know when they scattered, they ended up talking to people all about Jesus. And it says the word spread as far as Samaria. They just couldn't help but talk about Jesus. And you know, it's, it's fascinating. When you study the letters of Paul to the churches, you, will find, you won't find Paul beating up the churches, telling them, get on mission, do more, evangelize more, get out there more. He doesn't do that. It's missing. You don't find it in Romans, in Galatians, in Ephesians, or Philippians, in Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. You don't find it there. It seems that for the early church, even though it was a command, it was not this burden, it was a joy 
So how? How? Because, man, this mission month, I don't want you to hear from my lips, do more, be more, get out there, more, 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 more. I don't want to add a legalistic burden to you. But I want you, I would love, I would love an explosion of joy. An absolute explosion of joy. So how do we move from mission and evangelism being a burden to being an explosion of joy? And here's my thesis this morning. Here's my thesis. You may disagree with me, but here's my thesis. Is mission becomes an explosion of joy when the focus of our Christianity isn't about religion, but it's about grace. When the focus of our Christian faith isn't about what we do for Jesus but it's actually about what Jesus has done for us. And so I want to start out this mission month by looking at this interaction with Jesus and this woman in Luke chapter 7. So if you've got your Bibles or haven't got them open, open them up to Luke chapter 7. And we see in this passage, Jesus takes religion on. Do you know, there was, there was never anyone who was more anti-religion than Jesus. There hasn't been an atheist, an agnostic, you know, a skeptic who was more anti-religion than Jesus was. Jesus was anti-religion. I think that's why I love him so much. Look down in verse 38, we read this. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. Now, who was this Pharisee? Well, we're going to learn later on that this Pharisee's name was Simon, Simon the Pharisee. Now, when we read the Gospels, we tend to picture the Pharisees as being the bad guys, and we, 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 we picture ourselves as the good guys. But you've got to realize that the Pharisees were people who you would want to have as your neighbors. I mean, this Pharisee, they would have been morally right people, the sort of people that love their their wives, the sort of people that, you know, don't cheat and steal, they would have been morally upstanding. He would have been a morally upstanding person. And, and in terms of religious devotion, I mean, this Pharisee would have been so devoted. He would have prayed three times a day, fasted every week, would have given his tithes to the poor. I mean, as Robert Capron writes, this was the type of, the Pharisee was the type of person that any church would welcome into their membership. He is a morally upstanding person, religiously devoted. Now, just for interest's sake, or just for detail that will help you with the story, when it says that he had asked Jesus to recline at table, the tables were very short tables, and you would recline inwards, and your feet would be on the outside. And also, this banquet that he was asking Jesus to was not some private banquet, but it was a public affair. It would have been held in Simon's courtyard with open doors so that the community could come in and they could be around the edges and they could listen to the conversation of these honoured guests. And so this Pharisee, this morally upstanding religious person, he asks Jesus in to recline at his table to have fellowship with Jesus. And then notice what happens, verse 37, and behold, Luke wants to get our attention, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she bought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, who was this woman? 
Well, some have suggested that the woman was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was this woman out of whom Jesus had cast seven demons. But because she is mentioned in chapter 8, verse 2, I don't think it was Mary Magdalene. Others have suggested that it might have been Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Because in the Gospels, in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel and over in John's Gospel and John chapter 12, John talks about how Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointed Jesus with this perfume that was in an alabaster flask. And so some have suggested it was her. But there are details that are different in the text, so it probably wasn't her, probably wasn't her at all. So who was this woman? Well, this woman was just this unnamed woman. As Luke says, she was a woman of the city. That is code for a prostitute. She was a sinner. Now, we don't get the full force of what it means when it says she was a sinner because, you know, we as evangelicals, we say we're all sinners. We're all sinners. And there's truth to that. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But this is a technical term. You see, in Israel, the, the, the culture of Israel was a very religious culture. It's not like our culture, which is a secular culture. It was a very religious culture. And so there was a very, very like definite line between who was good and who was bad, who was evil and who was wicked, who was righteous, apparently righteous, and who was a sinner, who was in and who was out, who was a winner and who was a loser. And this woman was definitely in the former category. She was a loser. She was a sinner. She didn't have it all together. She was unclean, definitely unclean, and she would have known it. She may have just at that moment left the bed of someone who had paid her for her services. This is who that woman was. And she comes in, and she comes into the Pharisee's house, and she cries and weeps at the feet of Jesus. And the word here in Greek is not just a little bit of a whimper. She breaks down at the feet of Jesus, so much so that her tears wet his feet and she washes his feet with her tears and dries his feet with her hair. And then she takes out this alabaster flask of ointment, would have been perfume, and she pours it over him. The smell of that would have permeated the whole banquet. You know, have you ever been in maybe, you know, have you ever been out, out for dinner and someone comes in or you're at a social setting or at a wedding or something like that and come on, someone comes in and makes a scene in front of everyone? Have you ever had that happen? Someone makes this scene. How does that make you feel in that moment when someone comes in and makes a scene? You know, you, you instantly want to take the person outside, don't you? And want to say, come on, come with me. We'll, we'll come outside. We'll have a bit of a chat out here. That's what you want to do. You know, this is what this woman is doing. She's making a scene right in front of this banquet. And this infuriates Simon the Pharisee. He's indignant that this woman, this sinner, would come into his home. And make this scene with Jesus, at the feet of Jesus. But the thing that he's most indignant at is look down in your Bibles in verse 39. It says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, so this is what went off in his heart, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You see, <laughs> Simon the Pharisee was a religious person. 
And so he thought, man, if Jesus really... See, Simon had the assumption that most religious people have. And that is this, man, God can have nothing to do with sinners. You know, if God is going to accept people, they need to get themselves together. They need to clean themselves up. They need to, they need to work really hard. Because religion says you need to work hard, you need to clean yourself up, and then God will accept you. And if Jesus was any sort of prophet, if he had come from God, if he had, has, was come from God at all, he would know this. And so there would be no way that he would allow this sinner to touch his feet if he really was from God. Because we all know that God doesn't accept sinners. He only accepts clean people. People who have it all together. People who have worked hard. We all know that God helps those who... Hey, That's all we know. Well, this is the thing that I love about Jesus. Jesus is such a rabble-rouser. That's why I love him so much. He actually turns to Simon and he says, Simon, you've got it all backwards. You think that she needs to become like you. I tell you, you need to become like her. Look down in verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. You can see the arrogance. Come on, teacher, teach me. Say it, teacher. And then Jesus tells a parable. He says, a certain moneylender had two, de two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when he could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them would love him more? Now, this is scandalous, this little, little story. This is, this is showing the scandal of grace. This would have been scandalous at this time because everyone knew that moneylenders do not cancel debts. I mean, who here has a mortgage, all right? Who here has a mortgage? Just imagine for a moment that uh, you got fired from your job because you deserved it, <laughs> and so you couldn't pay off your mortgage anymore. Let's just say that happened to you. But the ANZ Bank found out, and they sent you a letter and said, right, we are going to cancel your debt. Would that ever happen? Would that ever occur? There's no way that that would happen. The ANZ Bank, they'd take you home in order to get their, their, pay their debt. They're not going to do that. But the scandal of grace, the scandal of grace, is that, that what, that's what Jesus does. We live in a council culture where people will be cancelled because of what they've done in their past and written off Jesus loves to cancel the debt of sinners. And he says to Simon, he says, which one of these will love more? The one both of them will love, the one who's had his 500 denarii cancelled and the one who's had 50, but which will love more? And Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon. So notice the woman is right here, and he turns to Simon, and he's actually teaching Simon a lesson. And he says in verse 44, he says, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You see, there were three things that a person would do for their honored guests when they came to their house. There were three things that they would do. Number one, they would give them water in order to, or a servant would do this in order to wash the feet of the guest. Second, they would kiss the guest in order to welcome them in. And thirdly, they would give them some olive oil. It was sort of like a deodorant that would make them smell nicer. And Simon hadn't done any of those three. Jesus is saying, Simon, you think that she needs to become like you. I tell you, you need to become like her. You did not honor me at all, Simon. You see, here's the thing about religion. Religion really has no need for God. Because religion is all about my efforts and what I do and how good I am. It's about checklists. It's about performing. It's about me. But the beautiful thing is, is that Christianity is not about religion. At the heart of Christianity is grace. Grace is God, an unobligated giver, giving to undeserving sinners that for which they cannot do for themselves. Religion is all about what you do. Grace is all about what, you, what has been done for you. Grace is not given to those who are upright and morally right in themselves. It's given to sinners, to those who cannot make it, who cannot do it, who have nothing to commend themselves towards God. That's what grace is. And you see, if the church, if we understand grace and we get back to the core of our message, if it's all about grace, then that will ignite us to share the gospel with joy. Let me ask you a question here today. If the ANZ Bank did actually come to you, and they did actually say to you, and you had lost your job, you'd been fired with just cause because you'd been a lousy employee and you couldn't get another job, and you were about to lose your house, but the ANZ Bank said, that's okay, we are going to cancel your debt. Let me ask you, would you tell other people about that? Would you put that on Facebook? Would that go straight to the gram? Yes? Of course it would. And let's just say the ANZ Bank said, we are no longer in the debt collecting business or the borrowing business. We are now in the debt counseling business. What would you do then? You, wouldn't you tell every single person who has a mortgage where they could go and get their mortgage cancelled? Go to the ANZ Bank. You see, this is where joy comes from. When the focus of our Christianity is no longer on what we do, but it's on what God has done for us. And here is the trap, my friends. So I don't know if this has happened to you, but this has certainly happened to me. When I first became a Christian, I was overwhelmed by the grace of God. I couldn't believe that Jesus would die for me. But then after a while, after I started to start to know things and started to grow and started to, to you know, understand the Bible more, then my Christian faith not only became about, about Jesus, it, not only, it moved from being about Jesus and his grace and it moved to being about me and what I do. And because I felt like I was getting a little bit better and I judged my getting better by looking at things that I did outside of me, like I'm doing these things and I'm not doing those things anymore, 
started to congratulate myself and think that I'm doing pretty good. I'm pretty well. But my joy dried up. My peace dried up. You see, because Christianity isn't about what we do, it's all about what has been done for us. You know, religion says the, the biggest problem that you have is outside of you, and therefore you need to look inside of you, and you need to clean yourself up, get yourself right, so that you'll deserve, and so that you'll earn God's acceptance. That's what religion says. Do you know what grace says? Grace or the gospel says your biggest problem is not what's outside of you. Your biggest problem is what is inside of you. That's your biggest problem. You need, you're a sinner. In fact, you're worse than that. You are dead, the Bible says. I know we love to celebrate the birth of babies, of new life. But every baby that has been born has also been born spiritually dead. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in the ways that you used to walk. But praise God, God made you alive. You see, the focus of Christianity is not us. It's Jesus. It's not what we do. It's Him. He is the light in our darkness. He is the door when all you see is walls. He is the rock, the steady place to stand when your world is falling apart. He is the peace in the troubled storms. He is the righteousness that you need because if you're like me, you keep on stuffing up over and over again. It's all about Jesus. The only thing I have to present to you today is not five principles, not three principles to apply to make your life better. The only person I have to preach to you today is Jesus. Because let me tell you, my life is bad at the moment. Let me be honest. It's not happy. That's me. I'm not happy. My life is not, is not all rosy at the moment. In my personal life, in my circumstances, it is hard. It is hard. It is difficult. Let's get real. Let's get honest. And that happens for Christians. So if you're going to tell me, Timon, this is what you need to do to make your life better, I'm not going to believe you because it doesn't work. I can't muster it up. I need to look outside of me. I need to look to the one who can rescue me. The rock, the only place on which I can stand. My wife is struggling with depression. You can't will depression away. You need something else. You need someone else to help you and give you peace in that situation. Let me tell you that. Got news this morning that our dog is going to die. The dog is going to die and I wasn't going to mention it, but that dog has been the thing that my wife has loved. It's really helped her through her depression. And he's going to die in the next couple of days. It's going to be hard. The pain is real. That's what life is like. And that's, not, that's what my life is like. That's what the life is like of people outside of this church. That's what it's like. Pain is real. Death is real. It is hard. What are we going to offer those people? Religion? Work harder. Do more. Get better. Or are we going to say, come and see. Come and see the one who says, 
Come to me, all you are weary who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I didn't mean to get that real, sorry about that. I just didn't, like, I wasn't going to share that, but I just felt, guys, like we can just, um, like in the midst this week of all the stuff that's been going on, just to be reminded that it's not about me and it's all about him. It's just, it's oxygen. Like it's just oxygen for your spiritual life. But, like I'm loved, even though I'm just such a, and you're loved. Like in that, in that what, we're, what we're on about here at church? Like, that's what we're on about. And so when it comes to mission, like we're not trying to like, Make ourselves better, so then come and be like us. Come, come and see. Come and be like us. We, we're, we're, this, we're this club that's got it all together. We're actually just saying, come and see. Come and see the one who is so beautiful, who's rescued us. Because look down, look down in this passage. I love this. I love this. Look at this. Uh, uh, verse forty-eight. Um, Jesus says to the woman, he says, your sins are forgiven. Wow. Imagine being like her and, and experiencing that in front of everyone. Everyone hears that. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? <laughs> who in this story makes people marvel at Jesus and his grace? Is it the religious person who claims to have it all together? Nah, it's the woman. Because she has just thrown herself down at the mercy of Jesus and received grace. And that has made everyone marvel. Wow, who is this that could be that good to forgive sins? And I just think my, my just suggestion to everyone is that if the church doesn't come back to that message, the message of grace, if it doesn't reject religion and embrace grace, then it won't be relevant to the hurting people out there who need him, who need Jesus. That's so beautiful. So beautiful. Oh, man. I feel like such a fool now after having shared that with you. Father, we just thank you for your word and I just thank you for your grace. Lord, I just worship you. We worship you. We honor you. We praise you. Even in the tough moments and the difficult moments, our rock is not ourselves, it is Jesus. And uh,
Lord Jesus, I just cast myself down on your grace. You are my identity. You are my strength. You are my God. I worship you, Lord Jesus.